0: welcome to the republic republican professor this morning we have with us jeffrey tucker and joining us from texas we have curtis and i'm in frozen california i had to put a long sleeve shirt on earlier today so jeffrey are you in uh, new york is that where you're joining us from
1: Uh, northeast uh, undisclosed location
0: northeast (laughs) awesome so um, we now have three geographical areas that are large, and no one knows exactly where we are, but roughly.
2: And the United States, Texas, we're so, California, New thank England. You, That's yeah.
0: <laughs> thank you for joining us this sure. morning. Sure.
1: Well, you know, before we started here, we we were talking about the crisis in academia, which I think is something you are covering here, and um, you know, we've we've seen these crises before. Yes. Mm -hmm. In the Middle Ages, um, monasteries made up for all the political chaos and the war and the Mm. disease and suffering and starvation by sheltering intellectuals and giving them space and time to write and preserve and Mm -hmm. innovate, you know? Mm -hmm. And by the um, 14th to 15th century, we saw even earlier, 13th, 14th century, we saw some of the great, Innovations coming out of these spaces, you know, these sanctuaries for ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the very first, I guess, you would call sort of modern capitalistic institutions came out of these sanctuary-style environments, and there was a, a, um, an ethos that, that even the most brutal kings, princes, or whatever would never uh, cross and across the the holy space uh, mm-hmm. of the monastery, and that um, that was true for many hundreds of years and. And you know the modern versions of the encyclopedia were innovated in, in that environment, and learning was generally promoted. I did so, not know that. Yeah, well, about people, the encyclopedia. Oh yeah, well those began in the very first one. I knew about Martin Luther. Yeah, well, <laughs> getting that Bible very, out. The the fourth century uh, Saint Isidore actually was a bishop, hmm. and um, I forget now which. Order of friars he was with, but um, completed the first dictionary of all known knowledge. Imagine that!
2: <laughs> wow. And uh what a feat!
1: Yeah, right. I mean, and you know, <laughs> let's just say he wasn't typing on his laptop. Right. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> you had to have you know whole teams of of uh,
2: scribes to even uh, think of taking that on in an analog world. That's crazy.
1: Pertus. yeah to say nothing of the fourth century where you have a you know uh extreme paper shortage <laughs>
2: Pertus, <laughs> it's impossible
1: we... to talk like this but you know where you, you don't have ballpoint pens you know you have right right feathers Pertus. and ink in, and you have to make all your own ink and then your paper you have to uh uh let's see i am not sure if this was written on vellum i don't think vellum was innovated yet so it would have been written on papyrus uh and then copied over and over and over again because that stuff will fade in a in 100 years uh yeah. anyway i mean yeah. uh saint Isidore did that now he didn't do it alone right i mean so he had a, a whole team of scribes in the in the scriptorum you know and um uh digging around everywhere and you know ancient ancient knowledge you know all the aspirations for all existing science theology mm-hmm. uh, geography um Logic, you know, uh, music. Yeah, media, you what were it, his I mean.
0: dates again? Saint Isidore.
1: We would look him up, at I, I think we're talking about uh fourth century.
0: Oh, yeah, that's papyrus. Yeah, yeah. So getting into Europe, it's vellum. You have to have vellum.
1: Well, that you know, kind of before, later, paper, is, uh, before paper, before yeah, which yeah. is lambskin. You know, it's, it's right, right, stretched right. and and uh, dried. Um, yeah, yeah. But any anyway, but I guess my point yes, is, we've always, yes, we've always needed uh, sanctuaries. And sanctuaries, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a good bump bump forward way far in history into the middle of the 20th century, where everybody thought the world was you know, we'd just gone through a world war. And so there was an impression that somehow everybody was safe, you know. So you had um you know these the Vienna Vien- Viennese academic circles, you know, where where uh you know. Uh, many c- coffee shop meetings in a stable university environment and and uh, diverse faculty talking about you know every subject you can imagine. Uh, True, truly um, diverse and, faculties, I think, as yeah, yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah, right. Uh, back I mean, when that term uh, meant something intellectually diverse and otherwise, right? Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, then you had the the great disaster happen, and that was the. The rise of of um, Nazism, Nazi ideology, in Vienna, and that happened long before the Anschluss, which I think was thirty six, mm. um, something like that. But uh, by thirty three, I mean you could see the Nazi youth mar- marching around the streets, and the universities are already being purged. And it, it got very scary, so, so, so the, the diaspora of intellectuals began and they had to flee. And the question was, you know, where do they go? And they couldn't come to the US for various reasons of, of immigration controls in those days, which is astonishing to think about. But uh, Switzerland was a neutral country and, and there were several institutions in Geneva that served as kind of uh, hosts to, to intellectuals who were fleeing uh, political, the possibility of political persecution, mm-hmm. and some um, part—not some part. Not some part um, well, one of my mentors, Ludwig von Mises, did this, and but also Freud too. You know, I mean, it was. Um, Wait, and you so studied
0: there, under von Mises?
1: Yeah, wish right. Okay, uh, no, okay, I'm hold just,
0: on. I just let's introduce you, Curtis. Yeah, sorry. Why don't you introduce our guest <laughs> this morning?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm back I'm, I'm, I'm to like I'm giving a fashion just... lecture. Curtis we just
2: got right into it. <laughs>
1: Curtis, please introduce our yeah. guest.
2: Thank you. Uh, well, Jeff, you, Jeff, I met you at uh, Acton Institute back in oh. uh, 2003. I believe it was 2003. That's um, a long time ago. Five, somewhere around there. Um, What's and, the Acton
0: uh, Institute for everybody? The Acton it still, Does it still
2: exist? It does. Um, okay. And it promotes what a free it? and virtuous society. That's its mission. Um, okay. Talks, yeah. I mean, I know what it,
0: it is, but some people might not know what it is and they want to yeah. know how to spell it and yeah, chase sure. it down. Well, how do you spell it?
2: Uh, A-C-T-O-N okay. was named after Lord Acton.
0: And what is uh, it? Is it a semester long thing? What is it?
2: It's a, it? Is it a weekend they,
0: thing? What is it?
2: What they do is uh, a long weekend. I, I, it's evolved. When I went, it was a long weekend. I think now they do a, a week or something like that. And they even have classes. Um, I'm not completely uh sure okay. whatever so it's like
1: a conference yeah, yeah 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 and it's it's peculiar because okay. it 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 generally has what's would say like sort of libertarian liberal leanings and 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 the sense that, that i feel uh but but it's particularly appeals to people with a with a religious bent and and want to integrate uh religious concerns with concerns over human freedom that sort of thing so um gotcha. I I would I'd not been able to, to teach there in a couple of years, but I'm I'm going back this year and oh, this year. And I'm cool. excited because I'm, I'm giving a lecture on public, on public health, you know, which is great. It's
0: oh, I wish help. I could see Thank that you. one. I'm waiting for that one. Uh, so tell us about your academic background.
1: Oh, it's entirely, you know, economics. I didn't finally finish the PhD, but I did graduate studies and undergraduate in economics and just fell in love with the, with the discipline and, and, uh, that's been and then I went into editorial work and and website building and institutional sort of promotion and that sort of thing. Worked at the you know, I was good friends with Murray Rothbard, you know, worked at uh, the Mises Institute for a quarter of a century, really, and then wow. moved on to fee and AIR. And then f- finally, um this this last year founded the Brownstone Institute, which uh brownstone.org. And I did that because Of the crisis in which we live, I really feel like lockdowns and mandates have Mm. fundamentally changed everything. I think everybody is blindsided by the powers of the state um, to just lock everybody down, shut down travel, close churches, close businesses, and issue stay-home orders, and then mandate um, universal vaccination for everybody in this highly sketchy way. And and so, you know, we've we've just been brutalized, and, and and of course it didn't stop there. You know, along with the lockdowns, we've, we've seen the unleashing of all of this, not just collateral damage, but but a kind of, I would say, like um, nihilism, you know, has been unleashed in the world and, and the political purges began. Those began last year, really, uh, with the censorship and with the driving out of faculty that refused to be vaccinated and, and uh, students too. And um, so the university is being systematically... Uh, purged of some of its greatest minds. So, you know, this, you know, this goes back to my little uh, uh, ill time d- discourse at the beginning. I mean, my, 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 I guess my, my point is that, you know, just when you think you don't need sanctuaries is precisely when you need them the most, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I really saw the purpose of brownstones, not just to get, you know, good scientific articles out there and good editorials and good, uh, you know, really highly competent writing and thinkers to to speak to people about the present crisis, but then also to build right. over the long term, something of a sanctuary uh, for ideas and mm-hmm. um, and and for, for people who are being purged. And now,
0: that's the mission of the Brownstone
1: Institute. Right, right. Okay. And, you know, I'm nowhere near, I wish I had the resources to absorb all the, the uh, great minds that are being um, driven out uh, right now. I don't but i've been able to uh take in some and i think that's the most we can hope for mm-hmm. um but you know i mean it's a brand new non a nonprofit, and it's and uh you know, I have to think about keeping us liquid you know yes um, and um and and just i mean just to, to, these days to to found anything you know i don't care if it's a a pizza shop or a, Yes. A nonprofit or a church or whatever. I mean, you're going to spend forty percent of your time in compliance, so that's what I do. Uh, So, I mean, the fact that well, you have to
0: keep people safe, Jeffrey. You have to understand. (laughs) It's really, it's really about safety. And in fact, would you guys mind wearing masks during this uh, interview? Just because I'm feeling a little unsafe
1: myself. Well, this is the lens. Like you were
2: right. (laughs)
1: I started in vain against all these these crazy policies, you know, um, in the middle of March, yeah, uh, 2020. But 2020. I was warning about them from January 2020 because I knew lockdowns could happen. I mean, I because I had studied the the regulations. Um, I won't call mm-hmm. them laws, but they're regulations and the plans from the CDC. And also, I'd been writing about pandemic p- planning for for 15 years. I mean, all the way back in 2000. Five, the Bush administration had already issued, yeah, you know, a pandemic plan that involves stay-at-home orders and business closures and really and social, social distancing and oh. oh yeah, this nonsense has been around for a very long time. I mean, it, when you re, when, you re, when I read it back in two thousand five, I was like, this is this is this is in, insane. I mean, this is and in fact, I made a prediction. I said, if, you know, if, if if anybody ever chooses to do this, they'll permanently discredit. A government and and unleash you know an unprecedented economic and political crisis and cultural oh, and social crisis. So it
0: sounds like what you're saying is that people have a right to make a living. They have a right to they have li- they should have a right to liberty, freedom of movement, freedom of association, and freedom of co- of contract for liberty of contract where they can. Engage in commerce to make a living. Um, now, would you say that that's subject to reasonable regulation, or how would you put that? Would you say that there's no regulation that's allowed for well, that?
1: I mean, uh, I mean, you're always going to have arguments about those kinds of things, you know? Oh, right. And and that's okay. I mean, I have my own views on this, but what we don't do. In any kind of civilized society is sh- shut it all down uh, by executive edict uh, based on some speculation that you're going to stamp out a pathogen. I mean, that that is what what should be out of the question. I mean, you can't close. It was,
0: it was speculation, but it was never admitted to be speculation. That's is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, we've never been through anything like it this was, before. And it was and, an expert. This, it was an expert opinion.
1: <laughs> but it, uh, she, uh, they weren't experts they were just bureaucrats just, just a handful of people trying out a new experiment on the world and mm-hmm. then it spread uh, and then the whole world uh lock down uh, based on this a wild untested theory um that they could do better than traditional public health over the course of the 20th century which had encountered um pathogenic threats in ni- 1918 19 19- how how is it different
0: than the traditional you say traditional public health i think Mm -hmm. i know
1: what you mean by that but but could
0: you Mm -hmm. explain it to uh
1: traditional public health so 1918 provided a good example of this because you had two cities uh san francisco and and uh and chicago that that closed schools and mandated masks and and generally freaked out and uh the experience of that was a disaster. It didn't control the pathogen. All it did is divide people against each other and, and cause uh, public frenzy that actually distracted from the key thing, which was how do you get people who are sick well? That's <laughs>
0: sort,
1: <of laughs> sort of what you want to do in the event of a pandemic is focus on, you know, how do you um, minimize the the uh, fatalities? You know, that right. that's sort of the goal. And so... After that experience in New York, essentially didn't do anything during that during that 1918 pandemic, and they fared really well. Uh, so the lesson there was: all right, let's let's try to be calm, let's keep the public calm, uh, figure out uh, w- who the vulnerable population is, and you don't know that in advance, right? A new pathogen comes along, you don't no. you don't know, um, but you watch, and then once you get clues. Uh, then, uh, public the idea of public health is that you alert people as to uh, you know who the vulnerable populations are and you urge everybody else to to live it, uh, to not panic and live a normal life. And the idea here is that um, so so you, public
0: health is just a, a function of educating educating people about yeah, what but the but there, there's is,
1: other or? yeah, there's other things too. No, also, no uh, orders,
0: no nothing else.
1: Uh, there might be a certain public policies. I'll give you a good example. The idea of public health came about in about the 1880s in, in England. So uh, the problem was, you know, what, what's causing this, these cholera outbreaks? And so once it was discovered that they uh, could be traced to um, certain poisoned water supplies, then the job of, of public officials uh, was to clean them up, you know, so you know, to, to, to look at the commons and and make sure that they're they're not dangerous for people. So that's right. one job of public uh, authority in that case. Um, but uh, muscling people, especially imposing some weird central pan generated by a computer model, was never part of public health. And so you yeah, know, for or the, treating
0: you know, or treating healthy people as if they were sick. Um, yeah, because you good. can't, you know, the claim was that we can't tell the difference, so we have oh, to wow. treat everyone Everybody as if they're sick. Think. And there was never, that, any that's, basis. that's that. never happened before. As far as I can tell, would you no, say that there, no, yeah.
1: there was never any basis for that? I mean, we knew from, from January, 2020, who the vulnerable populations were, but I mean, we had a very precise idea. I mean, the data coming out of Wuhan was very clear. Uh, about this and um, and the public health response was was obvious, which was um, uh, you know since there's more than a thousand fold difference in the vulnerability of young versus the old, you need to let old people um, protect themselves from the pathogen while life goes on, and right. the um, the virus becomes endemic. Uh, through natural exposure and, and immunity. I mean, that's just, Th- those data what?
0: were available right away from China. They were
1: very clear. Yeah.
0: The Chinese didn't,
1: didn't, were they giving us all the data? Yeah. Or, they were pretty, uh January. pretty open in, in January. And then uh, the government shut, shut down all the clinics, but initially all the Chinese scientists and researchers were sharing as much data as possible. And we got all the important data we needed to have a good response. Um but things got confused in February because um, public, the most powerful public health officials in the in England and and the U.S. Um, got distracted by uh, the the problem of the origin of the virus, and we can talk about that and and how that. Got messed up but there was no focus on therapeutics whatsoever instead they yeah. launched this 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 wild plan to, to lock down everybody and burks and fauci persuaded trump trump um went along with it which you yeah. never should have but on the other hand i wasn't in his position i don't know what kind of pressures he was under you know so you know but ahead, regardless uh yeah. he made a series of catastrophic errors and then basically he wasn't president from that point on the deep state took over sorry for the term, the administrative state took over and just just ran the country into the ground, into the election. And then uh, once that, yeah, then it just kind of went from there. But, um, but you now this is completely contrary to everything we experienced in public health in 1968, 69, we had um, the Asian flu, which was highly deadly and also um, had a much wider impact on a demographic impact on the old and, and uh, uh, young people too. but. Woodstock went on as normal, you know, I mean, and, you know, the flu became endemic through herd immunity, which is a process that was discovered in the 1920s. Herd immunity basically means that um, uh, you go from pandemic state to endemic state through exposure and resulting uh population immunity and that doesn't mean that everybody has to get the pathogen it means that some percentage have to get the pathogen to reduce the R not below below one and then and then it becomes manageable at, at that point so um not every so because not everybody has to get sick um what you want to do intelligent public health does is alert the people who are especially vulnerable and and advise them to stay away from crowds for a little while uh, until uh, the pathogen is passed around and meets everyone. And then our immune systems adapt. And that way we don't have naive immune systems anymore. We can go about life as normal. And you, you do this as fast as possible to minimize the damage. That's, that was the plan that was enacted um, in 1941, 42, and 43 with the um, uh, polio epidemics. And then also in 57, 58 with the Hong Kong flu and 68, 69 with the Asian flu. And then similarly, uh, well, things got a little confused. um, Of
0: course, everybody gets, all the kids get polio vaccines now.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, Polio is an interesting case. The Polio Foundation, which is now called the March of Dimes, um, initially began um, with great fanfare because... Mm-hmm. One of the strange things about polio is it tended to strike um, well-to-do upper classes uh, more severely than than others, uh, mostly due to level of uh, immunity. So people who were exposed to a lot of germs, you know, they're swimming, in the Hudson or whatever, you know, because, okay. you know the uh, working classes uh, tended to have a greater deal of immunity to polio. Uh, but but you know when when uh, the polio foundation of course the U.S. president you know too had polio so right, that was right. kind of a big deal. He didn't. Uh, I guess
0: he didn't swim in the Hudson up there and hide where uh, he was his, from.
1: His, his mother was a, a germaphobe, you know.
0: Oh, that's right. He, that's
1: right. Was, that's right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, he's very that's much right.
1: protected, and therefore. Relative. I'm, 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 I'm getting a little out on a limb here, but I, you know, since this podcast, I say, but he, um, he, he just had no innate immunity to to this. So he got it like a lot of upper class kids did. Uh, but they made really riveting pictures. You know, we see a uh, you know, immaculately dressed, you know, upper class girl with curly locks, you know, of the age of 12 uh, standing in front of you with uh, steel braces on her legs. It's, it's pretty shocking. So, mm. There was a big uh, campaign to find uh, to, to, to get the vaccine, and that was great. Um, but there was also a tremendous emphasis at the time. It, you know, FDR really wanted to help the foundation. They said to him, uh, the, not everybody likes you. <laughs> and the worst thing that we can do to uh, a disease and the public health response to a disease is to politicize it. So they wanted they made them stay far away uh, from the foundation because they wanted to raise, raise money just um, and pursue the, uh, public health has always been, uh, there's been a separation between politics and public health, there always has been. I mean, they, for good reason, so, because you, so you even, don't want to politicize the disease. So even during the New Deal where you had
0: the most massive incursion into the economic sphere from the government, the the most massive quick growth of the administrative state up to that point right even then is what what you're saying is that people valued economic and and liberty of of movement and stuff like that so much so that politicizing a public health crisis like that would have been too far
1: they absolutely yeah they absolutely ruled it out and uh, in, they in hadn't been
0: of, used to big government yet, I guess, is what you're saying, probably.
1: There was, a, there was a real strong sense of public health at the time had that it needs to stay away completely from politics because there needs to be a separation between, between politics and disease mitigation. That was the the belief. Yeah. Okay. And there were no closures that ever happened. I mean, there was uh, a few, there was a, there was a sense at the time that maybe um, polio was being passed in uh, public swimming pools. So there were some so when the outbreak would happen in particular towns, they would sometimes sometimes people would stop showing up to the uh, swimming pools or sometimes they were closed. But but uh, but that's about it. And then other times there were other flus like 57, 58 um, that 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 hit school kids pretty hard. The schools weren't closed. What happened is that right. there was just a lot of absentee, you know, during uh-huh. the flu season. it's like, Oh, gosh, Bobby's absent today. What do you say? What, what do you
0: say to the? Well, the obvious criticism from uh, you would get initially would be you just don't care about people. But I mean, a little bit more serious criticism would be something like, "Isn't the coronavirus the Wuhan flu, whatever you were to call it? Isn't that more deadly than the flus that you're talking about in '58 and Woodstock and?" Or what would you say to that? Um, I don't think we know that. We yet. want no. to transition into cryptocurrency at some point. Just
1: when asked, okay. yeah, doing. I don't, I don't. So, so I don't think we have an answer to that yet. Because uh, first of all, the data from this period is actually really uncertain. Um, we still don't have a a clear case fatality rate for seasonal flu. Really, even now. But that's a good um, point. Um, yeah. But you know, going back to fifty-seven, fifty-eight, we know a lot of people died a lot of people are hospitalized yeah um and a lot and if the flu is still deadly oh it is <laughs> right. but what's interesting yeah. is very that, deadly the demographics here and, and again i'm i don't right. have the charts in front of me but um 57 58, i think lifespans were maybe 15 years fewer than they are now um Oh ah, so, yes, yes. Yeah, and same to sixty-eight, sixty-nine. So, to say nothing of nineteen eighteen, where I think the average lifespan was like forty-seven or something ridiculous. Yes. Okay. So, so what you have with the SARS-CoV two is a virus that's particularly uh, dangerous for people that are living longer than people have ever lived. So, you would have to look at fifty-seven, fifty-eight. 68, 69, and age adjust uh, the mortality uh, and make sure that you've not misclassified the deaths and then age, age adjust it uh, according to current population levels. And maybe there's somebody smart enough to pull that off. Uh, we don't know. But, you know, you're asking an interesting question because, uh, you know, every time a new pathogen comes, comes along, people want to know, you know, how bad is it going to be? Well, how bad is it? Well, yes. That is not an easy thing to know. And it's certainly not a priori. You know, you, you have to kind of experience right. it. And and in real time in the fog of war, it's, you know, generating uh, infection fatality rates and case fatality rates. And by the way, those are two different things, Mr. Fauci. Um, uh, you know, it's, Such
0: it's a basic an... distinction. I don't know why they couldn't get that. Why were they and focusing on cases? one's a little on more cases? meaningful
2: than the other.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but now, you know, we don't even have these, these terms, we've lost these terms now, because uh, if you if you look at any of the major databases that are pumping out the, for two years and cranking out information about uh, COVID infections, they call them cases. Well, they're not cases. If you have a positive PCR, that is not a case. A case is when you're you're sick, 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 and and you've got a thermometer in your mouth and an ice pack and you know and a heater bottle on your head and you're calling your doctor and you're taking therapeutics. Okay, you're definitely a case. But if if, uh, right. if a PCR test swirls around in your nose and 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 discovers some you know bits of virus, uh, that does not make you a case. It, right. At best, makes you infected. It I love the way you said you. that.
0: I love that. Then <laughs> that makes total sense. It's like. Okay, yeah. With the, with the flu, like if I have no symptoms of the flu, why is that a case? No matter what you do with my nose, exactly. I mean, why would yeah. I even let you touch my nose? First yeah, so, of all, if I'm asymptomatic, <laughs> so then I, you, how can I have the flu? Okay,
1: you might not even be infected. So you know, there's there's the presence of the right, virus. Right. You know, asymmetric presence of the virus. So you you're you're probably you're not passing it on. You're not sick. Okay, you're not sick. Right? You're not infected. You're not sick. You're not a case. Then Basic you've got infection between sick and not sick, right? And then you've got you know the infection where you actually are infected, but 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 you don't show any uh, symptoms that are discernible. You know, so you're not a case, but cases are are genuinely sick. And then there's a huge gap between being a case and being uh, hospitalized. I mean, there's a huge range there, and you know this from your own experience that. You can get sick and you're like, oh, I'll get over it. Oh, I'll stay home. I'll sleep this one off. Sleep. sleep. Right. But then The next day you're worse than Jesus it's not getting better. Then it gets better. Then it gets worse. And, and, at you know, and maybe this goes on for, for 10 days, maybe it goes on for two weeks. And it's at some point in here, you're like, <laughs> do I need to go to the hospital? You know, you're not sure, but you only kind of go to the hospital once you sort of get, you know, start feeling scared, you know, right. But there's a huge range between being a little bit sick and going to the hospital. Right. So that's, that's where COVID uh, was a very serious thing. Uh, Much. So here's the irony. When COVID came out, crazy Fauci was, was told the the Senate, uh, he said, some people are claiming that this has a three to 4% death rate. I don't think it's that high. I think it's closer to one or maybe less. Okay. Now, if i said that s- sentence to a bunch of congressmen, so the only thing you're going to remember is 3 to 4, right? And also this term death rate is a meaningless term because there are many ways you can calculate death. Are you going to do it mm-hmm. um, you know per million is it is it a CFR is it an IFR which is it? You know, he never explained. And so if you're a stupid senator, you're listening to this and thinking, oh, three percent of the population that's going to kick the bucket (laughs) what's what's cfr and ifr for everybody i'm sorry case fatality rate versus uh infection fatality rate yeah if
0: i if i have let's say if i have polio and i'm walking around i'm fine doesn't do anything to my legs what's and if that's what most uh, a significant chunk of people with polio that that's how they experience it. That's how most people experience polio.
1: Right. So the way the CFR and IFR uh, work is that, for example, if you have a thousand uh, people who are, are 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 infected and one dies, you're going to get a pretty uh, small infection fatality rate. But if you have a thousand infections but only fifty cases. And one of those dies. Now you've got an infection fatality rate of a case fatality rate of one in 50, which is pretty high. So knowing the difference there is really important. And Fauci just kept mixing those up. It's even worse than that. You talk about a death rate. Nobody knows what you're talking about. All right. That's not right. IFR, or yes. CFR. We, we right. don't know what that means. Are you talking about the number of people who are infected are going to die? Or are you talking about the number of people? I'll give you an example of this, actually, where this was just insane. Um this data stuff 's really important in yeah, two thousand yeah, in yeah. two thousand five and two thousand six, the big threat was the avian bird flu mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and crazy crazy George Bush who was in there a was hospital.
0: a SARS right before that too uh, in 2004
1: yeah two thousand and yeah, three two thousand and four, and we can talk about that that was a strange one. Uh, because just in brief it it hit the oceanic region but it never made its way over here and then phew, the world health organization took control for took credit for having controlled the spread of that thing and that trained them to think oh we can do this which whether that's true or not we don't really know. But um, that was a really catastrophic experience just because the public health response was starting to imagine itself that that sort of hegemonic controls over a pathogen could actually work. But anyway, in 2006, uh, the avian bird flu came along. And Bush was giving these press conferences, you know, prepare to stay home. You know, you might have to close your business. We, we're going to have the federal government delivering food to your doors. And, you know, we're going to end all travel. It was like, you know, giving me this wild press. going you marshal all resources in the nation to crush this virus? Well, people were bored. I don't know what was going on in 2006, but he couldn't get any attention from anybody. It just so happened that uh, uh, that the avian bird flu never made its way from avian from birds to humans <laughs> it's actually really funny but there was there were two people that were being extremely weird during this period one was anthony fauci who uh gosh I, he wasn't even on my radar back then how yeah, were you following he, him back then no no okay. but uh but you can go back and look at the news reports and see that he was telling everybody it had a uh uh cuz you know <laughs> <laughs> This shows what the status really seriously goes. Well, you know, we've seen some uh, early indications that this flu can 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 go from animals to to humans, and uh, we have we have we have uh, six cases, and, and three of them uh, have died. Um, so so that's a fifty percent mortality rate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you anthony and then and then there's one guy someone academic expert i can't remember his name but you know academics so there's one guy who 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 was the one leading world expert in the avian bird flu and he became a media darling (laughs) and he began to give all these interviews abc nbc saying half of humanity half of humanity could die from this. Now, uh, obviously it didn't happen. So you have to kind of think about the psychology. Could could, could die. (laughs) I love the word could. Yeah. Half of humanity could die. So you have to kind of think about this um, from the point of academic experts who have an extreme specialization, you know, they've been slogging through their whole careers. well, I wrote my dissertation on avian bird flu. Oh, avian bird flu. Oh, avian bird flu. Here's a paper yeah. on avian bird flu. And you've been doing this for decades. Suddenly, avian bird flu is breaking out. And everybody comes to you. You're like, finally, finally, people care about my research. And so you have every incentive to hype it up. And what are you hyping? You're hyping your own importance.
0: You know, yeah, that's I'm, what you're hyping.
1: I'm a hammer, and that looks like an,
0: I think it looks like a nail. What do you know?
1: That's well, if, if I were a crazy person and I had a special, and I, I had a particular sort of hatred against uh, flip-flops. Um, and I've been writing about them for years and years and years. And then suddenly there was kind of an outbreak of uh, of, of blisters. You know, it's <laughs> like, you see, I've been telling yeah. you. So, so, dig, dig up those posts from 2006 right. on, My, on MySpace. <laughs> so anyway nothing ever happened with the with the avian bird flu um and it, it, it never went anywhere and then h1n1 of 2009 was actually really serious flu year um and it was interesting because obama was president but we had a financial crisis he bragged about how he handled that and i think he handled it very well actually so what did he, did he do not,
0: right and was that more dangerous than coronavirus do you think or wuhan flu
1: no it wasn't as dangerous as coronavirus, coronavirus much worse but um but it might have. It was a bad flu year, so it might. I don't know how you compare it with past. So again, you know, it's like we use these terms: bad, you know, mild, whatever. You know, it's, these have. What did you like but, about how he handled that, Obama? He didn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, he did. He couldn't do anything because he had a financial crisis to deal with, and everybody was worried about whether or not. Uh, you know, they they were watching their home values collapse, you know, and they're worried that they weren't getting, uh, they were going to go to their ATMs and not be able to withdraw cash. And Congress was consumed with bailing out all the banks. And the Fed was worried about financial catastrophe and everybody was distracted with something else. And so when uh, they came to Obama and said, we've got a bad flu year, he's like, do you mind? I got a few other things on my plate here. Yeah. so speaking of financial crisis
0: and inflation and stuff like that um we heard that you know a thing or two about cryptocurrency do you want to talk about that for a bit
1: yeah that's a big jump well let me uh, kind of make the transition in the following <laughs> uh, yeah
0: way. let's let's transition uh
1: the transition is is as follows and i'll just tell you a funny conversation i had with my mother a couple of days ago i said mom uh, how are things at your grocery store? She said, I can hardly afford anything. I, I swear prices have gone up 50%. It's just unbelievable. Wow. Uh, really? Yeah I, uh, yeah, I can't afford bacon. I can't afford, uh, you know, this rock melon, you know, which I used to have every day. You know, it's now, you know, uh, I, it's breaking the bank. It's just awful. You know, the food prices. And, and I said, well, how many, it's, well, you know, the same thing's happening to me. Right. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, of what's happening in food prices? We don't know. I mean, what what the inflation rate is of, of food right now? I mean, it's high. But I said, how many uh, people do you think connect uh, the prices at the grocery store and at the gas pump today with the lockdowns of 2020? She said, Oh, I don't think anybody understands that. So uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. So I did. I set out uh, over the last three days to write what I hope, and I just published it this morning. Uh, the definitive article that connects these two things so hmm. you know what what happened was where can we, we get down. that article yeah i mean it's just i just posted just now it's its the latest piece on brownstone, brownstone. okay but, um, we'll link it's, it it's, it's, we'll it's link really it. important it's important and yeah, I mean, you can argue with me about my thesis here or whatever but okay. it goes kind of like this we lock down and then um now you can't lock down an economy was going to go bankrupt and it's going to you know cause disaster, right? So, you know, if we hadn't done anything after lockdowns, all the states would have opened up after two weeks and gone on with their lives. But instead, Congress appropriated $2 trillion uh, of money they didn't have. And so so suddenly, you know, at all the state levels, the state state governors and, uh, you know, the uh, public sectors and uh, businesses even, you know, we're like, hey, we're getting a lot of money out of this. You know this we're getting rich here from these lockdowns. this is not this is not so bad. I've never seen a time. and then that got expanded out to the stimulus checks uh, so th- suddenly the, you know they're dropping money into your bank accounts, you know well, just giving rough figures uh, looking back two years, uh Congress appropriated a total of six trillion dollars to stimulus payments, and the Federal Reserve created six trillion dollars in new money okay so what happens is congress um votes i'll give everybody money okay there's no money to give anybody that government doesn't have that money so what do they do they have to create debt where's the market for the debt the federal reserve becomes the market for the debt they're buying the debt their balance sheet explodes what do they buy the debt with well it's the federal reserve (laughs) the whole point of a central bank is that it has the the ability to buy to they can push up are you saying
0: they can push a a key on the on a computer and then boom? There's more. There's a a bigger number in some account somewhere or some accounts.
1: How's the, that work? The checks of the Federal Reserve don't bounce. Okay. So, so they create
0: the, money out of nothing, basically.
1: That's right. That's right. Okay. So the uh, that's what I thought I'm, you meant. Yeah, and I'm I'm giving you the numbers uh, based on the, the money at monetary aggregate called M2 which is the only one I can use right now because they, in May of 2020, changed the definition of M1, which is a better, uh, uh, now a better aggregate that's more accurate than M2. But the Federal Reserve has not updated its past numbers of M1 with its new numbers of M1. So they're not comparable. So it's kind of useless. So I so use M2. It's
2: not getting updated.
1: <laughs> What's that?
2: I, I it's, it's so many things from the government don't, aren't getting updated. Oh, no, no. These last couple of years.
1: Uh, I, it's just something. So I, in other words, I was going to, if I was going to give you M1 statistics, I'd have to run the numbers myself. I don't have time for that. So, uh, but you look at their own charts, M1 is now useless. So M2 is, is the numbers I'm giving you. Six trillion in new money, six trillion in new spending. And oh, what a shock. Now, look, there's huge pressure on all the prices. Now, this combines with, you know, the problem of broken supply chains, you know, uh, which is a, a, a catastrophe and and we're nowhere near fixing it and then you combine that with war sanctions and you combine that you know with the with the decoupling of, of and, and tra- trade conflicts with china plus you know and the tariffs i mean you've got a perfect storm of catastrophe all of which most of which 90 percent of which dates to the lockdowns all right now we the trade problems began two years earlier so everything's related, right? It began in 2018, lockdowns happened, monetary printing now suddenly a package of bacon is 10 bucks, you know? Uh, So it's, you know, this has to be considered part of the the harm. Now, you want to talk about cryptocurrency. Um, I've been, you know, involved in in, um, researching, writing on this topic since uh, 2012. And you know, it's a kind of ledger technology. We were we were talking about vellum and papyrus earlier, you know, as sort of uh, tech writing technologies. And, and the main purpose of those things was to document, you know, not just only to document knowledge, but also to document ownership. Mm. Uh, but you, it's really important to be able to document ownership, because that's how you get um, complicated economic arrangements, you know, so that um, if I suddenly kick the bucket, people need to know. Well, what did he own? Well, you've got to have documents to prove that, right? Or uh, uh, if somebody's renting something from me, and then he claims to own it. I need to have a document to prove prove otherwise. To, to have d- double entry uh, accounting, uh, you have to have documentation. You need to be able to to establish who owns what and under what conditions, and and uh, and and that's what gives rise to to better. Uh, economic outcomes. Um, for most of history, that was vellum and that's how the Medici's did their work, you know, and the vellum and that's great. But uh, within 1970s, you had the invention of databases, which is great. So it's, you know, you could just change one entry. You didn't have to rewrite the whole thing and you could reflow the material based on you know, different entries. And, and it, it, we know that the database revolution of, of the 1970s was responsible for explosion, explosive prosperity in the, the 80s and 90s and, and uh, after the turn of the century. I mean, it was uh, remarkable. All uh, uh, um, Bitcoin did was take um, that ledger technology and, and make it distributed so that everybody could own a ledger the same ledger, um, and it would all update simultaneously, so that you had no one person you had to trust. Uh, the ledger was literally unowned, unowned by anybody in particular, or owned by everybody at once. So depending on how you look at it, but it, so it, an extremely accurate, very fast and and secure way of knowing for sure who owned what, and that's that's the essence of of uh, blockchain technology. So the newer era that, uh, that was established to uh, account, to, to document that ownership right, um, they called uh, Bitcoin, which itself uh, became a source of value. Initially, um, I think one sixteenth of a penny, and then gradually grew by the end of 2013, it was $1,000. And I've been writing about this stuff and saying, look, it's not—it's not so fancy. This is just a digital method of doing what we've been doing since the since the ancient world. It's just really efficient, and the ownership units here are naturally valuable because they're because they're scarce, and because they're they're trackable, and because you can know with certainty uh, who owns what. And it just also it's kind of an advantage that um, it's not based on on trust. So like credit cards are based on trust. Like I have to prove that I'm a a sort of a fancy guy who pays my bills in order to get a credit card with Bitcoin. Anybody can trade it with anybody else without going through a financial intermediary, which dramatically uh, lowers counterparty risk.
0: Is it, is it?
1: So it's, it's like gold is what you're saying. It's gold except, except, with except it's weightless. And, and you don't have to, but it's not pretty. (laughs) (laughs) The people,
0: the reason people like gold is because they like looking at it.
1: Well, well, the problem with being able to look at it is that then you can't. Then to get it to somebody else, you have to, uh, you have to, you know, you have to send it the mail. You have to, you know, t- take Transport. a car, yeah, you know, uh, get yes. on a boat, or whatever. So, what
0: is it that people like about Bitcoin besides? I mean, so if gold people like it because it's pretty, but which has the, the attendant problems that you mentioned about transfer. And, and vulnerability to theft and stuff. But yeah. but what about Bi- Bitcoin, though? I, I don't understand the analogy with gold just in the sense that does it do anything? I mean, is there any function? Um, it, I mean, it's not jewelry. So what is it?
1: What? It's the ability to bundle up information bits and port them regardless of geography uh, instantly and very cheaply and very, uh, very quickly and very cheaply anywhere in the, anywhere in the world without using an intermediary that has never been achieved before in the history of humanity. So okay. it, it, it overcomes all kinds of problems mm-hmm. um, that gold the, has. The
0: information bit thing that you mentioned mm-hmm.
1: does what value does that
0: have independent of, of anything? Does it, well, it's, does it's it help an, do something
1: or? Well, it's,
0: I guess yeah, that's what um, I'm missing. <laughs>
1: yeah. So it's a, it's an immutable uh, packet of information. I mean, if I had a, a bu- bubble in my hand that contained some you know information that and and I was the sole owner of this bubble, and I could just kind of throw it up in the air, and somebody within a few seconds uh, uh, in Singapore uh, could grab that bubble in his hand and then open it up uh you know that would be an amazing um that would be an amazingly valuable bubble
0: well uh, I, I guess what i'm assuming okay so take that example that's a good example the guy in singapore why would he want that bubble what's in the bubble that he wants that, what how does it that improve sure his comes life
1: from you and, and it's working <laughs> Okay. Uh, It's a, it's a, it's a scarce unit and, and and nobody else can have that unit and he can be absolutely certain of that. So, um, so I think what you're, you're sort of getting at is the important thing, which is that people immediately saw. That this is this technology for securing ownership rights and and porting them without financial intermediate without intermediaries with zero counterparty risk with absolute certainty that was not not censorable and so on uh, could become a, a money uh, for a digital age. You know, um, I mean, you could look at a dollar and say, "Well, what's that worth?" You know, and that's just a green piece of paper. Well, it's it's worth something because it signifies something, and. Um, um, and so similarly, uh, Bitcoin was. But now, how much is it worth? That was left to the markets to decide. And initially, for 10 months of, after its deployment until until October of that year, which was 2009, um, Bitcoin's posted value was zero. And then only later did people realize, right. oh, this, this is actually a very useful technology. Okay. So uh, gradually yeah. over time, and That's I good. think even, even from 2004 Thirteen or two thousand fourteen, I had predicted it was going to uh, that it was going to become a, a kind of a safe haven for uh, storage of, of assets. Um, and Did you say
0: that you predicted that in two thousand seven? No, sure. two thousand two
1: thousand thirteen. 2013, 2014, okay. 2014. and that's what it's become. Um, when the lockdowns happened, I really expected Bitcoin to to soar, and it didn't. It didn't respond very much at all, and I was surprised by that. Mm-hmm. But uh, once the dust settled, and the you know the the, the chaotic world uh, started somewhat approaching normalcy again, there was a widespread awareness that there was one thing that never shut down, that couldn't shut down, and that was blockchain technology. And so, so sure enough. Uh, Bitcoin has actually sustained its value, and then, and then um, I think I think the peak price in terms of dollars was sixty five k at some point, but then it fell. I think as low as thirty five, which is not unusual. But now I think it's bumped up again to forty two. And now now that everybody's panicked, they're wondering. People are using it as a kind of a financial asset now because um, you know what it's like. I mean, you look at your, your your you keep your money in the bank, and it's losing you know ten percent of its value. Yeah. A year and you're like, well, I better move into stocks. Well, your stocks are on seven percent. We're still down three percent, you know. Uh so you've got to make a fifteen percent return in stocks, even to uh, to make the old return of five percent because of because of, of inflation. So you start you start to panic a little bit, you know, like well, wait a minute, am I just destined to get poor here? I mean, what is yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. And so then people are looking around for other assets and and cryptocurrency in general, not just Bitcoin, but many other assets out there in the in the crypto world are attractive to investors now especially since uh there are many assets out there that do things other than just serve as a kind of a neutral money um uh, yeah know, NFTs, nfts are the big thing right now which i find i find nfts to be what's an nft uh that's a non-fungible a non-fungible token um so and it's mostly used to buy and sell art online um so you buy an nft these things sell for millions tens of millions i don't know what the highest price of, for NFT. It's probably now in the tens of billions, I don't know. But I I find the whole uh NFT market to be utterly uh, preposterous. I don't I don't want somebody's digital painting sitting on my left. What am I going with that right. crap? Um on the other hand I find the same uh, thing is true about the modern art market.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well there you go. Fair enough.
2: <laughs> Yesterday
0: I was in the mall at Orange County. There's a big mall it's a it's in pretty well known mall in Brea, uh, which is North Orange County and they had a Bitcoin atm there mm. I, i've never seen one before and it was right there in the food court <laughs> i was like whoa um that's strange so i took a picture it of it um anyway uh i thought you know that the, the the thing with bitcoin is I'm, I'm still not sure i get it uh the the uh analogy or the comparison with a dollar bill for example is is helpful uh if i look at uh, some gold and uh, a stack of cash um the the gold i i see as uh, something intrinsically valuable it's not just scarce it's something that you know you well, i guess we could argue whether it's intrinsic you know and that philosophers the philosophers, the will, argue, yeah. the philosophers okay. will argue whether it's intrinsic or just a coincidence that so many people like it I would say it's a, a good explanation that so many people like it because it has some kind of intrinsic value. But um, the the dollar bill or the stack of cash has something written on it that, that was written by the United States government or at least backed by it. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and it's saying that the full faith and credit of this very powerful <laughs> nation, the most powerful one, the one that the, but the, the, the best military and uh at least right now um the 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 most powerful economy backs this for all debts and so that's worth what it is it's because of what's written on it but but now crypto bitcoin or whatever seems like it's like okay if it's just scarce that doesn't mean it's valuable to me because there could be like some kind of mineral out there I it doesn't right? doesn't do anything it's just right. scarce. it's scarce it's not beautiful sure. So what I, I still don't get it. It's not beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's it is scarce, but mere scarcity doesn't seem to be.
2: Uh,
0: I mean, That's dirt true. is scarce. I mean, you, right.
2: you wrote you wrote an article um, uh, several years ago about how Bitcoin uh, gets its value, mm-hmm. uh, connecting it with with Mises' uh, with Mises' work. Uh, would you want to talk about a little bit about that? Sure.
1: No, all your questions are reasonable, and and you do have to remember that there was a time when Bitcoin had no value at all. Like ten months went by; it had no value at all. So, how did it obtain value? And it's it's yeah. because it it uh, it, uh, it provides a service, and the service is the okay. porting of immutable information packets across across uh, uh, space, uh,
0: and people find that service valuable for some yeah, reason.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a it's a it's a, it's a it's a currency that's, that's obtained value because of the services it, it delivers. That's it. And, and and that makes it slightly different from traditional currencies, which obtain their value uh by by virtue of their barter and and the markets. So um let me see if I can just quickly explain this. But um uh, in a barter economy, you have to trade, you know, eggs for cucumbers and cucumbers for pants and then you know pants for eyeglasses and eyeglasses you know and so on it go so it's all direct exchange but it's it's difficult when you get you, know, you have a cow you know um uh how are you gonna, you're gonna say well i'm gonna trade my cow for some uh for some pants it's like well how are you going to do that in a barter world? You, you this, these, a cow is not divisible unless you kill it, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So you've got problems of divisibility, uh, portability. You're going know, to drag the cow around, you know. Um, yes. And um, you've also got uh, non-uniformity of the goods. So, uh, what ends up being m- um, most useful for money are the existing valuable goods that are divisible, have a uniform. Quality and have a high value per unit of weight, so they're not so hard to carry around. Um, they're fungible with each other, which is to say that you know this uniformity leads to fungibility. So there's all these features that that feed into why something becomes a money, which is to say a, a good that you previously. Uh, value just for consumption. You now value because you know for sure you can trade it with somebody for, for something else. I mean, and this can happen to anything. I might I might discover that, um, and it does happen. Actually, there was a few years ago there was a tremendous um, uh, problem with people stealing t- tied laundry detergent um, <laughs> to the point that you know stores had to put them behind. Lock and key, and nobody can understand what it was. And then some smart person discovered that in drug markets, where uh, it was difficult to exchange cash, there's a cash shortage. That people had discovered um, that you could use these, this Tide laundry detergent as a kind of a monetary tool. You know, you, so you 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 get it not because you want to wash your clothes, but because you want to you want to pay somebody for drugs. Because other people want to wash their clothes,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Eventually, somebody's going to wash. probably going to wash some clothes, but it'd be, they right. don't have to. It just obtains monetary value. The same thing happens in prisons. Prison. I had a friend who went to a prison, and the the money in that prison was uh, cans of mackerel. I think
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, it used to be cigarettes, but now they don't allow that. So, um, so there's these cans of mackerel. So, so you get a haircut and you have to pay a can of mackerel, you know, and so on, and then. Um, uh, and then one day, uh, one of the prisoners went to solitary confinement, and they raided his, his, uh, his cell and found his mattress stuffed with um, cans of mackerel. <laughs> and the well, warden. But you
0: can eat that. I mean, you can't eat Bitcoin, though. I mean, so, so okay, let me let me push it a little bit more. Let's say the cans of mackerel are all so old that no one would possibly. And it reminds me of some of the auctions that I go to in the the Second Amendment community out here in California, where right now, um, because Sears and Montgomery Ward used to sell ammunition, but they don't anymore, uh, Mm -hmm. you can buy uh, at auction um, old Sears and Roebuck ammunition, which is scarce, not because you want to use it to shoot it but you want it it brings back memories it's sentiment it it Mm. brings back a feeling of yesteryear Mm -hmm. and uh, it's the sentimental value that people have when they look at it Mm -hmm. um, that that makes it valuable i think and so
1: that's slightly different because okay it's a collectible uh, yeah, you know, yeah, that's right. Things. I mean, there's plenty of bills and coins out there that people like.
0: It's to like art. It would be like art then, um, kind yeah, of sure,
1: sure. And but you don't necessarily acquire those things in order to trade them for in the future, unless you're you're kind of no, not a true, not a
0: true collector,
1: no. right? But a, but a money is supposed to be rather neutral and uh, it's like all units are right. Uh, okay. As best as that's, possible, it's supposed to be you know uniform uh, quality. Right, you know? right, okay. I mean, and by the way, that's a a descriptive uh, point, not a prescriptive one. So, in other words, I'm not saying, oh, this in order for something to be a money, it has to be this way. I'm saying that that's what we've observed over time. Oh, that, okay, you know, I see. That the most see, uniform, you know, the the lightest, most visible, um, you know, scarce scarcity figures into this, and there's all these factors. But Bitcoin checks all the boxes and then also adds, you know, extreme portability and immutability uh, in there. Do you put extreme portability under the value versus weight consideration? Yeah, I mean, yeah. The fact that you can, you can move it uh, to anybody else in the world. And uh, by the way, let me just suggest something to you because We've had these discussions for, you know, a good part of ten years now, and and it it's what I've found is that people who have never, you know, owned or used Bitcoin, you know, have a hard time sort of understanding it. Um, you said right, you were at, right. you were you were at a. Uh, a thing the other day where you saw Bitcoin ATM. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, the next time mall. next time you're there, throw a couple of twenty dollar bills in there and and download a, a a wallet. It could be any wallet. I mean, there are thousands of them, and carry it around for a little while and enjoy it. I mean, it's fun. And then you need a uh, USB for that. What do you need for it? What do you need? Like a flash drive? Need no, you don't need anything. You just use your use your cell phone and and hold it up to the screen and and scan the QR code and and uh, you get your bitcoin that's it so then you you carry around with you. you can watch it go up watch it go down watch the self lose money watch yourself get rich you know depending on what happens and then uh once you get bored after a month or two um uh, go to the brownstone uh dot org and don't donate half of it to brownstone institute and, and uh, <laughs> And you'll see. You'll see. It. I don't think you know how old my Vanishing. phone is.
0: I don't think you know how old my phone is. <laughs> you should have seen a picture of my phone before you gave me that advice um, because I have a payphone in my pocket and you need to put 10 cents in. And it's got a rotary dial, and
1: uh, well, that could be a problem. That could be a problem. So yeah, you've got to have a kind of a, a, a phone with a camera and, and that sort of thing. Um, gotcha. uh, by the way, if you wanted, if you want to have a physical Bitcoin, what you can do is, um,
0: does it have to be on your phone? Does it go on your phone? I'm sorry, I'm asking. Doesn't, it doesn't. Questions. It
1: doesn't have to. I mean, you've got to have some way to to uh, capture that. If
0: I can't explain it to my grandpa, you're not gonna be able to explain it to I me. Mean, he's 99.
1: So he's yeah, gonna be okay. like, oh, yeah.
0: so he's okay. So <laughs> does it go on the phone? Where where is it? Is it just
1: so what you're doing, what a wallet is, is what if is I lose my phone? Yeah. Um, so all well, okay. If you lose your phone, hopefully what you do is anytime you download a a wallet. What it, what, what the wallet is, is is not really a wallet. It's it really is just a keeper of a private key because uh, a cryptocurrency uses a double d- double key encryption. You know, so there's a public key and a private key. The the wallet holds your private key. That's it. Okay. And, All right. and gives you access to your ownership unit. So um, when you download your wallet, it's going to ask you to write down a twenty five letter um code you know it's got to be exactly in the right order and that sort of thing and and you write that down and then put it that that piece of paper somewhere in a secure location so if you do lose your phone you can go dig up that piece of paper and then recreate your wallet you can download any wallet technology and rebuild it instantly just by putting in that that code and if you get shipped uh, on a d- desert island for, for 30 years or, or you go to a maximum security prison uh, and you get out. For you know, you can, you can <laughs> so,
0: well, 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 the private, that's the private key. The public key, do I have to write that down too? Is that something? No. Or where do I put the keys? public keys
1: are, are typically these days generated um, with each transaction. So, so. if
0: if i go to some bitcoin portal as long as i have that private key and i put that in it will know which public key it'll automatically match it
1: with that public key um you would never i don't know i'm, I'm sorry you, I'm just... it, no it's fine you would never use your private key to bitcoin portal what you do is is okay. putting your credit card or some cash or something like that uh and then download a wallet and then and then scan the QR code, and then you'd be the owner of Bitcoin. So, and it goes into your wallet, which is really just a private key hold, uh, holder. And if you lose your phone, then you can recreate that same wallet um, with your private key uh, with your um, letter code that signifies uh, the private private key. Um, you can also, if you want to, um, print out you know uh, your Bitcoin on a on a piece of paper, which is just you know, a QR code um, and, you know, stick that somewhere in a secure location. And, and uh, that's called cold storage. So you can have physical and you can mail it to a friend who can then scan it and take all your money. (laughs) So it's pretty, pretty fun. But anyway, I'm I'm going through a lot of links to explain all this, but the best way is just to throw yourself into it and enjoy it. And
0: figure it out. And you yeah. could do it just within, like, with a dollar. You think?
1: And you know, the, what's, the, the, what's ATM, the
0: smallest amount that you could get into it if you were just wanted to play around with it?
1: Um, it depends on. I guess it depends on the ATM. But um, okay, I got you. But but you know, you don't have to use an ATM. I mean, you can go up to some Bitcoiner in town and ask him. Uh, if if I can, uh, uh, you know, if if you can give a, a quick lecture on philosophy, or 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 <laughs> or dance a waltz, you know, <laughs> or sell your shoes, uh, you could he could he could give you Bitcoin in exchange for your services, you know.
2: Jeff, what, one of the. One of the questions that I've been dying to ask and kind of explore, it goes, it, it
0: my grandpa would love you by the way. He, <laughs> he would, he would love that
2: part. That you just said. It's th- this isn't as practical. It's a little more behind the, the theory and everything. And what's going on is I guess I'll say what happens as Bitcoin evolves and becomes more and more permeates itself throughout culture. And it gets more acceptance. What happens to things like gold? Cause I've always been a gold guy. I've always, you know, I mm-hmm. I, I, I learned about the Austrian school um, in mm-hmm. grad school and mm-hmm. uh, really pursued that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. When Bitcoin came out, I, I was fascinated by it, but but all but still always like yeah, but gold. And then I read an article that you wrote um, talking about tying it to Mises' Bitcoin, tying it to Mises' uh, mm-hmm. criteria, and. And then in that article, you'd also mentioned that sometimes uh, uh, things that are used for money get reduced to uh, uh, commodities. And we see things like silver and gold being used on a commodity level um, in manufacturing of all kinds of things. And I'm wondering, could there be a reduction of those things to commodities? And does this take over and go into the future, or is it not working like that?
1: You're saying if you, an existing money uh, becomes demonetized and then only obtains its value through uh, through its industrial uses or its uses as as, as, as consumption value? Correct. Uh, that that's happened uh, many times throughout history. I mean, salt used to be uh, money. Mm-hmm. And now we just use it as a flavoring, I mean, which is probably good because, you know, I, if you own a home, you sold it for salt. I mean, <laughs> well, it funny. preserved food and that, that's really <laughs> valuable.
0: It makes food taste better, but it preserves food. That's, right, that's another really case in, other cases, in is an they, air in a world without refrigeration.
1: It, it per, well, that, it that's true. But those food. are those are consumption. Whether it's flavor or preservation, or whatever, it's pure consumption, not monetary value. In another another case, well, but is it's that, you that's know, valuable though, as everybody needs sure. food. Yeah, it's valuable as a consumption good, but but not necessarily as as a, a monetary value. Which is to say, you don't acquire it in order, uh, solely for the purposes of obtaining other goods in exchange. You know, and, and okay, all right, that's, yeah. So another that's good what example. you mean by monetary value. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it means we use it in so-called indirect exchange. Um, you know, another historical case is the case of wampum, you know, which is sort of the the uh, Native American Indians, you know, used wampum for their currency, and then the English settlers came over and said, well, uh, that seemed pretty good. So they, um, and th- these were um, little necklaces made out of sort of white shells, you know, that you could okay. try. And so the English w- went back, and I don't know, they found some uh, shell farm somewhere and said, yeah, wow, look at this. This is this is money to these people. Uh, it came back and, you know, uh, created a wampum hyperinflation, you know,
0: <laughs> a,
1: few, a few months and so demonetized uh, the wampum.
0: Do you mind if we ask you, uh, feel free to ignore this question if it's too personal, but how did you get into economics? Um, did, were you always interested in this since you were a little kid, or oh no? Or no did no. you go to college and you were like an art history major, and then you took an economics class and you were like, "This is
1: it"? Um, uh, no, well, it's, it's almost.
0: Oh, it's, you seem it's to have a it. good I, humanities background. I, I detect yeah. that. So, how did you get yeah. that training? And,
1: uh, well, so I was kind of one of these kids that was raised to be a certain thing. uh, by my by my loving father Mm -hmm. so i was raised to be i was raised to be a musician and became became a kind of a child prodigy uh, a brass instruments player and um so in other words you were tortured as a kid (laughs) no i loved it you know and and but but long uh, hours though right well yeah and i you know but the problem was that I got got, how do I put this? I got too good too soon. So, uh, you know, by the age of 17 or something, I'd already traveled with the guy Lombardo orchestra, you know, playing, you know, uh, trombone Uh, that I had played with, you know, two or five of the world's greatest players that had been on stage. I had been, uh, um, Uh, You know, I had the best professors. I was playing with the Texas Tech Trombone Ensemble first. You know, I'd conquered all the literature. I'd played all the hardest possible classical pieces and so on. So at some point I was like. (sighs) I'm bored. (laughs) Well, yeah, at 17, if you've already done the thing you aspired to do for your whole life, you're like, well, is there anything else I can do? So when I went to, I got out of high school early because I, uh, partially because I just got tired of being the fancy member of the band or whatever. But um, so I went to college and I said, like, yeah, I don't know what to study. And I thought I had to have a major right away. So I just kind of went from department to department. And, uh, you know, the physical sciences are never quite right for me. Although I've really gotten interested in it the last several years. But um, philosophy seemed to seem kind of dopey. And uh, <laughs> history, I was like, oh, that stuff's already happened. Um, and psychology. <sighs> Of crazy people so i saw this department called economics you know and went to the stumbled into the dean's office and i said yeah i'm wondering if i should study this but i don't know what it is and he got up from his desk and gave me the speech about how through economics the science by which we understand why some nations are rich and some are poor why civilizations rise up and others are swept away you know the dean was saying this yeah it was an impassioned speech What, what, what college was this this is texas tech yeah
0: no kidding! Wow. Yeah,
1: so I thought, wow, that's exactly what I want to study. So, so I jumped right into it head first and just scourged myself on the subject and, and loved it. And I mostly was, you know, taught, you know, old style Keynesian theory. But I, I, thought it was beautiful and fun. And um, then only were, later, were you a I,
0: Keynesian at that time?
1: Did you buy? Yeah, that? I didn't didn't have an identity. I just did my work, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't yeah. coming to beliefs yet, or did you? Oh uh, no no no! I mean, you know, Keynesian is just a bunch of uh, you know. It's aggregates. in the water.
0: It's in the water.
1: So you have yeah to yeah. But it. it's just it's just these big guys that's crashing into each other and modeling and that sort of thing. It's all fun. Okay, I gotcha. Uh, but it was only later, once I discovered sort of the, uh, the you know the Mises style uh, thinking, that I, I began to connect um, my mm-hmm. humanities background with my economics. Right. So suddenly, the Ashkenaz schools. How, school how cool much later
0: was that that you even heard of
1: that? Maybe two like, years. Okay. Yeah, two, two years was that after college? No, no. As well as in college. Yeah. Oh, that's was good. Maybe my, my junior year or something like that. So I threw myself into all of that and read everything I could, and it was nice because it it's nice to find out that economics is is about human beings. You know that was a, that was an amazing discovery. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> it's not just numbers. What and... a
1: concept! Yeah.
0: And it, what at what point did you think I want to go to grad school and get more even more leveled up on them?
1: well I went to journalism school after undergraduate and I, I did I did a lot of journalism and writing. Mm-hmm. And so then I went to work for uh for Ron Paul as his uh No kidding, re- really research wow. assistant. Yeah. And then after a year or something like that, I decided to go to graduate school and I enjoyed graduate school, but I, I kept getting distracted with other things, Na- namely the desire to change the world, you know, and, and do journalism. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you're in graduate school, you need to do, you need to be like really focused on graduate school. And I just, mm-hmm. I just wasn't. So I, I learned a lot, but I couldn't stick with it. Um, so I just went into what I do now. And where, I'm did you go, where did
0: you go to graduate school?
1: George, George, George Mason.
0: Oh, that's really good. That's a, that's yeah. one of the best programs.
1: Uh-huh. yeah 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 well i mean some people say i should have stuck with it and got my phd and go, okay whatever you can always look back but um, did you study with uh walter
0: williams i did mm-hmm.
1: oh man i'm jealous what was he like as a professor uh funniest guy ever hilarious brilliant yeah yeah he was he was uh very clever but but tough yeah
0: tough teacher I, i've heard he was rigorous yeah <clears throat> who was your favorite professor
1: uh, Donald Boudreau. Um, I really liked him. Took him a class on industrial organization with him. And now, yeah, I work with him every day at Brownstone. So he's, he's a good man. Oh, no, that's
0: cool. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. So tell us about Brownstone. How did that come about? How long has it been in existence? Well, it's only
1: been in existence. It's in public existence only since August 21, but I began to conceive of it in May mainly because I realized that you know, the crisis was uh, without precedent in our lifetimes anyway, and it was, and I looked at other crises in history and they, they port- portend huge ideological philosophical shifts. And I looked around at all the prevailing institutions and I didn't see anybody who responded to, um, this disaster in any kind of competent way. In fact, I thought they were all remarkably incompetent mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's because they're just so buried in their ideological priors. And when the pathogen came along, they didn't know what to do. They didn't have any theory. The left flopped, The right flopped, the libertarians flopped. And I thought, well, we needed something new to, uh, to really read the history of and meaning of and philosophical importance of, of the concept of freedom and liberty into a wider range of topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, among which public health so yeah uh, so that's what we've been focusing on ever since, and uh yeah 10, 10 million views later you know we're we're doing pretty well how uh did you get the term how did you get the name
0: brownstone? I know that that's a type of kind of a an old school building in New York City, right that there's mm-hmm. like two thousand of them left or something mm-hmm. is that the how did you get that name?
1: Well, my, my initial name was Greek, and I talked to uh, Martin Kuh- Kuhldorf, uh at the time, and he said, well, you know, the problem with that is that uh, 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 Greek is mostly Greek to people. <laughs> so my next name was uh, Latin, and then another friend of mine said, that, you know, I don't know what it is with this name, but it's unpronounceable, and it makes you sound like you're located in uh, Puerto Rico or something. And, <laughs> So anyway, it was my mother who came up with the title of brownstone. And, and, and the reason for it is that before the age of steel, brownstone was the main building material that uh, was used in, 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 um, in the birth of the modern, from about, you know, from, from say uh, 1800 to 1870, uh, okay. the building block of the big cities. And uh, the reason for that is that it was prevalent um, but it's also a malleable stone. You can cut it. And it doesn't have a strict grain to it. So it's it can be cut in many different ways. And I thought, well, this is a good symbol of, of what I want to do. I want to, I want to, I feel like in many ways we're starting over, you know, we need to rebuild and I don't want to be partisan about it. So okay. right. that speaks to the fact that the stone doesn't have a grain, you know, mm. it's just, it's just a building material. And I, I feel like it, you know, it symbolizes a certain strength, durability, and tradition, and that's really what I'm kind of going for here. I I really, we need to, we need to get back to fundamentals. You know, do we have rights, um, or or don't we? Um, No kidding. Do we value freedom or 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 not? Um, Yes. and by freedom, I mean the ability of people to make their own choices and coordinate their actions with other people and yeah. uh, develop The fact that you
0: felt like you needed to explain what, what freedom is—that that itself yeah. is, a, yeah, shows how yeah, far well, we've the come.
2: The will I I've always think is that freedom seems I, 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 even in America to be a lost knowledge. Um, we yeah, use the word, but we don't understand it.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, so partially, what I'm trying to do with Brownstone is. Is publish material that is very engaging on the contemporary scene um, that speaks to really deep and eternal philosophical uh, topics in in ways that are uh, compelling. And I think it's a it's a long term process. From speaking from an educational or editorial point of view, but then, but then much larger. You know, going back to our initial conversation, I really do want Brownstone to serve as a kind of a sanctuary in, in these times where, where people are being swept out you know, of public yeah. life Yeah, we have to fix that
2: that's a great mission
0: well we're really uh, happy to have you on today we're, we're,
1: we're glad that you came on thank you for coming well, it's my pleasure, here. thanks for, for, uh, for letting me talk as much as I did and I've, I've enjoyed it very much <laughs> it's you our pleasure it's, all, it's our
0: pleasure, yeah Well, Curtis, do you have anything? Well, sorry,
1: sorry. I I said I was going to say you let me uh, elaborate great great length on a variety of topics and a calm, inviting atmosphere, which is rare. So, thank you. Well,
0: that's our stick. That's what we do. We're we want the calm. We want people to be uh, in a nervous state of rest and digest, not fight or flight, and definitely not dorsal vagal shutdown. Because that doesn't make that doesn't make for a good learning environment. So what we're trying to do is is level people up on uh, issues of importance to the to um, the nation. And um, like what you just said, a lot of what you said about brownstone, I think you said durability, strength, tradition, mm-hmm. um, you, you, the getting back to the fundamentals. And that's what I'm all about. I I saw so many in my party, the the Republican Party, that didn't even seem to understand uh, the process by which we certify an election, which is such basic knowledge Mm -hmm. that that they never got. They never got it in high school, and they they apparently never got it in college. And Mm -hmm. so there's so much grade inflation. There's so much censorship. Uh, and the censorship really bothers me the grade inflation bothers me i think over time it's just i saw firsthand in the classroom when i felt pressure to inflate grades it just meant that my students learned less that's what it meant because they don't study as hard sure and they don't study as hard they're dumber (laughs) because they you know it's not that they're dumb people it's not that they're stupid it's it's that some of this like like playing a, a musical instrument requires work. You have to put the work in to know basic things. And yeah. so it's uh it's a little frightening. I was uh, very uh, concerned and I, I think concerned, I'm under saying it about the last two years in March of 2020 was traumatic for me. I, I could not believe what I was saying could not believe that so many people were going along with this and not asking basic questions. Um, I, I I was horrified, but what was happening to small businesses? Um, and I, I I've taught in business departments for ten years, uh, business ethics and public policy, and I've seen the seniors that I had in the Cal State system at Pepperdine in Malibu. I saw the seniors that are business majors that. Didn't get it, you know, until they took my class and that, you know, but, but some of even the economic majors weren't getting it, you know, and um, I just, I know that this is the kind of managers, the kind of entrepreneurs that, that higher education is squirting out into society, and it really bothers me. So it doesn't surprise me in that sense, it doesn't surprise me what happened because I've seen just what the students are like and what they're getting they're not getting stuff in their other classes i mean they were getting it in mind but i'm just one person so yeah. that's we're trying to do whatever we can to sure. bridge I that gap it. thank you yeah curtis did you have anything else
2: i i geek out on a lot of things that you write um so there i could we could talk another couple hours as far as i'm concerned <laughs> we just don't have the time um love to be able to talk with you again
0: you guys thank need you. to have a Bitcoin party. Just, you know, yeah. get ju- share each other's private keys and just, you know, have some drinks.
2: <laughs> that sounds personal. <laughs> it, does.
0: It, it did come out a little differently Careful. than I meant it. Yeah. yeah. Public keys, public keys, yeah. public keys. There you go. Gotcha. I don't even know the lingo, you know.
1: Well, thank you, gentlemen. And uh, let's do it again. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. All the best. Here.